0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Uh, Thanks for those of you watching online on Facebook Live. Uh, Hope you're having a good morning. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving weekend. I know, obviously, this was a little weird, a little different than years past. And uh, I know we all had to make some adjustments and and changes of plans, but uh, I'm really glad that we can gather this morning. Together, uh, to sing praises to God, to pray together, to read scripture together, to uh, fix our minds on the, the, the giver of life. Uh, and I'm excited that we've entered Advent season. Uh, first Sunday of Advent. I'm excited that we have candles up here. We've got wreaths on the door. We have a place that we can meet uh, and, and celebrate together. So um, thanks for taking the time to come out this morning and worship together. Well, let's dive right in to our teaching time this morning in the book of Acts. And uh, I want to remind us of why this book was written some of the aims of the author, Doctor Luke, who wrote this book uh, as a uh, a two part volume, his gospel uh, that that bears his name, and this book uh, that he wrote to both of these books that he wrote to a man named Theophilus. And uh, as you read these books, it's pretty obvious that Luke has some aims in writing this two volume work. The first is to give Christianity a definition, to give Christianity definition. Uh, in the time that he's writing. At this point, uh, Christianity has been, uh, this Jesus movement has been happening and growing and progressing for several decades now. Uh, And there are a number of different beliefs and practices um, on, on on a pretty wide spectrum from people who claim to follow Jesus. And in this book of Acts, uh, Luke is giving us a picture, giving Theophilus a picture of what these early Christians were like, what their practices were, what their beliefs were, um, and, and as we are going to see, as we have seen, and we're going to continue to see this morning, is that everything centers around this man, Jesus Christ. So Luke wrote these this two-volume work to give Christianity definition. He also wrote it to give Christianity an identity. An identity. This book uh, is is pretty clear that Christianity, these followers of Jesus, find their roots in the Jewish faith. Uh, The Old Testament scriptures, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, these are the roots of Christianity. Yet, again, as we are going to see this morning, begin to see this morning and throughout the rest of this book of Acts, Christianity is not tied to a particular ethnic group or a geographic location. And Luke makes this very, very clear. So Luke wants to give Christianity a definition. He wants to give it an identity. And then lastly, he wants to give Christianity some legitimacy. You know, in a lot of people's minds, this is a new upstart religion. This is a new uh, philosophical idea. But... What Luke wants to show in both his gospel and in this book of Acts is that God's hand has been with this movement from the beginning. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years before this volume was written, Luke shows us that God has been with this movement from the beginning. And what we are going to see today in our passage is that God is faithful to his promises and that no amount of opposition can thwart his plan. God is faithful to his promises and that no adversary, no opposition, no amount of rejection can stop God from doing what he has set out to do. So would you turn with me to Acts chapter 6? And I want to start by reading the first, um, I want to start by reading verses 8 through 15 of Acts chapter 6. Luke writes this. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the Synagogue of the Freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia, or Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I'm going to stop there. We see Stephen again, who we saw last week was one of the seven men that were chosen by the people, by the, 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 this early church of God, to minister to a group of Greek-speaking widows who needed to be provided for. So Stephen was one of these Greek-speaking men who were chosen to oversee the distribution of food. And yet here we see that not only has Stephen been caring for the church internally, but that Stephen is also on mission out in the community, that Stephen is performing great wonders and signs. This was just what the apostles had been doing up to this point, the 12, that Jesus had commissioned to be his witnesses. They were performing signs and wonders and proclaiming the name of Jesus Out in the community. So, Stephen, one of the seven that were called to serve the church and build up the body, has also taken up this mantle and this calling to be out in the community, witnessing, proclaiming the name of Jesus, and performing great wonders and signs. Next week, we are going to see another one of the seven, a man named Philip, out in the community outdoing the work of God to people who want to hear and are curious about this movement, about what Jesus is doing. But what we see here is that Stephen, as he is out in the community on mission, he faces opposition. But we see a shift here that we haven't seen before. Up to this point, all of the opposition has come from the religious leaders, the author- the temple authority, the men who were in power in that, in that community in that day. They were the ones opposing the apostles. But here what we see is that this opposition now is coming from ordinary people. Members of this particular synagogue. Now these synagogues, these were all over Jerusalem. Think of kind of like a community center. There's, it's estimated that at this point, there were, over, there were close to 400 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem. And these places were uh, used for schools. They were used for courts. They were used for uh, political and social discussions. They were food pantries. They were places where the community would gather for, for meals together. They even served sometimes as hostels. People could stay there and live there for a certain amount of time. And even though the temple was still the the center of the formal worship of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, these synagogues also served as a place of worship. And just like a lot of our community centers in our city, they attracted people of similar backgrounds. And this particular synagogue we read is a synagogue that was known as the synagogue of the freed men, descendants of Jewish slaves or even people themselves who had been released from slavery, uh, from Roman captivity. And what Luke tells us is that this synagogue was populated by not only people who were former slaves or descendants of slaves, But they were people from all over the Roman Empire. They were people from from North Africa. They were people from what was known as Asia Minor, the area where present-day Europe and Asia meet. These areas were heavily influenced by Greek culture. These folks were Hellenists. They were Greek-speaking Jews, just like Stephen. And that's probably why Stephen was there. He was there with his own people, with people he understood and understood him, people he shared the same culture and language with. And we don't know exactly what Stephen was preaching or teaching in this moment, but we have a good idea based on what he was accused of. Luke tells us that he, as he was preaching, it riled up these people so much that they got some other people to accuse him of blasphemy against God and Moses to the religious leaders. They ginned up a crowd and took Stephen by force to the Sanhedrin, that council of religious leaders that the apostles had been brought to and had to stand before, and that these folks stood up people in this council, in front of this council, to give false testimony that Stephen was being critical of the law and of the temple. I can assume that Stephen was probably preaching the new covenant truth that because of Jesus, the Jews were no longer bound by the law. They were no longer restricted to temple ritual. That through Jesus Christ, they could know God. They could be in fellowship with God. They could worship God. You remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, that there was coming a day where worship wouldn't be restricted to this particular temple or that particular mountain, but that everyone would have the opportunity to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm sure that's what Uh, That's what Stephen was proclaiming and teaching and preaching these Jews. But for them, these words were unpatriotic. This was anti-Jewish. This went against what Moses taught. This went against the temple and what the religious leaders taught. This was irreligious speak. And so they bring Stephen before the council, before these temple authorities. They lie about it. They slander him. They bring false witness against him. And yet, Luke tells us that as Stephen stands there, and all of these insults and all of these lies, this character assassination comes towards him, that his face was like the face of an angel. I'm sure. Luke is using a figure of speech here because it's interesting that Stephen would be accused of blaspheming Moses. And yet in the middle of this, Luke would say, you know what? He was very much like Moses who came down from Sinai after being in the presence of God to declare the words of God to the people in his face Shown like that of an angel. Stephen stands here in front of these officials as someone who has been with God, as someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, someone who is bringing the words of life, as we will see, to these people. Now, I want to read for you the entirety of his message of his speech here in chapter 7. It's a bit long, so bear with me, but I think it's important that we read this together. and Then I want to make a few comments after this. Starting in verse 1, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, While he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our ancestors could not find food when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 and all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would recognize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner And had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and dared not to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through an angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Raphan the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where where will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet? Your ancestors did not persecute. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous ones. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Woo! That's a powerful speech. That's a powerful message that Stephen delivered. This is not a defense of himself. This is not a critique of the law or of the temple as he was accused of. What Stephen is doing here is connecting the most important people, the most important places, the most important events in Jewish history to the present day. He is revealing for these leaders how they had missed the entire plan of God. They had gotten it all wrong. They had missed it. Their eyes had been blind. Their ears stopped up so they couldn't hear. In verses 1-8, through Stephen recounts the Abrahamic covenant, where it all began. The father of the nation of Israel. God promised Abraham that through his descendants that God would make a nation, a people for himself, that they would have a land to call their own. And God's faithfulness to this plan was that Abraham left his home, even though he didn't have any children. God said, Abraham, go, I will do this. And in great faith, Abraham responded and followed the direction of God. In verses 9 through 16, Abraham moves on to Joseph, Joseph in Egypt. That God preserved this these descendants of Abraham through a worldwide famine because of Joseph's position in Egypt. But Stephen introduces a wrinkle in the story. That Joseph was in Egypt because God Because Israel, through the patriarchs, through Joseph's brothers, had rejected Joseph. They had sold Joseph into slavery. God's faithfulness to his people in spite of the brother's rejection of Joseph. Then Stephen moves on to Moses, the great leader of Israel the great deliverer of Israel, the great lawgiver of Israel. And in verses 17 through 36, Stephen talks about Moses, the deliverer, that God was faithful to his promises way back that he made to Abraham by saving Moses from certain death, by preserving Moses' life, by putting Moses in Pharaoh's family. From you, by using Moses to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. But again, God's faithfulness was proven in spite of Israel's rejection. That Moses came and said, God has sent me to deliver you. God has sent me to lead you out of this slavery. And their response is, who made you ruler and judge over us? Israel rejected Moses over and over and over again. Verses 37 through 43. Luke uh, Stephen moves on from Moses the deliverer to Moses the lawgiver. That God was faithful to his promises to his people by giving his people the law, by giving them, as Stephen says, living words. If you remember last year when we went through our study in the book of Exodus, we saw that the law given to the people of Israel was to tell them about their God, was to reveal to them who their God was, what their God was like, His power, His authority, His sovereignty, His holiness. And it was also a way in which they could figure out who they were, their identity as the people of God. But they rejected the law. They rejected the lawgiver. Even as Moses prophesied that one day will come another prophet just like me from you, from your own people, they rejected Moses. And lastly, Stephen gets to the tabernacle and the temple God's faithfulness to his people in providing a physical, localized place where God's presence would dwell with His people. That began with the tabernacle and in Stephen's day as he stands in the temple. These Jewish authorities, these temple leaders, these people who were leading the Jews, teaching the Jews, shaping their understanding of who God is and who they were. They had placed an inordinate amount, an inordinate amount of importance on the law and the temple, misunderstanding the whole point of the law, the whole point of the temple. And as Stephen says, you have missed the point that God cannot be contained in buildings. That God's presence is in the hearts and the lives of his people. Those who would follow him. What we read here, what we listen to here is more than a history lesson. It's more than Stephen just giving an account of the good old days. This is an indictment against the religious leaders and against the people of Israel. Because as Stephen says, all the promises, all the great people, the law, the tabernacle, the temple, all of it points to Jesus. All of it points to Jesus. The plan of God has always been a dynamic plan, a a progressive plan, changing throughout the ages. And that plan has culminated in Jesus Christ What Stephen is trying to get these men to understand is that you are living in real time the plan of God. You are living in the plan of God. You have have received the words of life from God. You have been sent the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Promised One of God. And yet you rejected Him. You rejected Him. And in doing so, they were guilty of what they had accused Stephen of, blaspheming God and disobeying the law. And just like their ancestors, who over and over and over again rejected God, failed to see the plan of God, failed to see themselves and the role that they played in God's plan to bring himself glory, they would too face judgment. They would face God's judgment. This is not only a powerful message, but it proves to be an inflection point in God's plan and in the history of the church. Remember, as Luke is writing this book, he wants to give this new movement definition. He wants to show that it has deep and long-lasting roots. That those deep and long-lasting roots are connected to the present. Next week, we're going to see, as we move into chapter 8, that Luke's story begins to shift away from Jerusalem to other locations and to other people groups. God's plan will continue to change. God's plan will continue to progress. God's plan will continue. And this is not a surprise. This shouldn't be a surprise to any of us who have read the scriptures because as Stephen laid out, this is what God has been doing ever since Abraham. Making a people for himself. His glory filling the earth. It's what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter one as he commissioned them out before he left this earth, that they would be witnesses not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and all over the world. What we see here, and this is why I think Luke devotes so much space to this one message, is that we see the plan of God and the hand of God begin to move to the next stage. To grow. The Spirit is always moving. And the Spirit is always looking for people who have the ears to hear and who have hearts ready to receive. As I close, I just want to give us three things to think about. Three things that connect with us today as we read this powerful message and as we see the next chapter in this book of Acts beginning to take place. We are living these promises today. We are living in the plan of God today. Our lives are a part of this. One of the reasons that we wanted to go through this book together as a church community is to give us a foundation to help us understand our history, to help us see that our roots, even though we are a young church, even though we are a small community of faith, that our faith has deep, deep roots. That their beliefs and the practices, the things that we have been called to do as a church community in this city is part of a bigger story. It's part of a bigger plan. That God is moving in this city. That God is doing a work in this city. That God was doing it before we showed up. And that God will continue to do it long after we are gone. But that we are a part of God's plan. And that we are also confident and assured that just as God was faithful to His promises to Abraham over generation after generation after generation, God will be faithful to His plan. And God will be faithful to us. God's plan isn't tied to a particular ethnicity. It's not tied to a specific geographic location. The worship of God isn't... Contained in certain places or through certain practices, that God's Spirit is dynamic and working and moving, and we are just a small part of that. And that as we are faithful to follow Jesus, worship Jesus, listen and obey to what God is telling us to do, that God will be faithful. Because God is faithful to his plan. God will work out his plan. God will get his glory. God's glory will be uh, seen all over this world. His glory will fill the earth. And even when we face opposition, opposition from people, opposition from institutions, from authorities and power structures, we can trust God and we can go faithfully because we know that God will be with us. We know that God will get His glory. We know that nothing that happens to us, (laughs) nothing that happens to other followers of Jesus in this city, in this state, in this country, around the world can stop God from being true to his promises. And then lastly, our first Sunday of Advent, this season, where we look back. We look back with joy. We look back with gratitude. We look back at the first coming of Jesus. And at the same time, we look forward in anticipation and in hope for the day when Jesus will come again, we can know that God will fulfill his plan and that our lives, that our faithfulness, that our obedience, that our uh, perseverance in the face of opposition will be vindicated. It will all be worth it. As we are going to see next week, Stephen loses his life because of this message that he preached. Stephen loses his life because of his proclamation that the old has gone and the new has come. That as we continue to be faithful and persevere, we will know that one day when Jesus comes back, all of that will be worth it. All of this life will be worth it every sacrifice that we have made will be worth it. Every insult and and, and rejection that we experience, we will be vindicated because God will rule and reign over this whole earth. This message of Stephen is powerful because it shows that God is faithful to his promises And that nothing will stop God from accomplishing his plan. And you and I are a part of that today. As we come to our time of communion, where we celebrate the fact that we are a part of something. That we are not on an island by ourselves, figuring this out alone but that we stand on the shoulders of men and women down through the ages, that we share in fellowship with people from every tribe and tongue and nation around this world who are following Jesus, who are part of this plan, who God, through whom God is making himself known. We do it with joy. We do it with hope knowing that God will get his glory and that we get to share in that with him. So I invite you to take your communion cup or for those of you who are watching at home to have a piece of bread and and, and a glass of wine or a juice. And let's do this together as one body. One body of Christ brought into fellowship with God. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And praise God, Christ is coming back again. Let's do this in remembrance of him.